0: Hello, this is Father Kelly Edwards once again talking about the Holy Land pilgrimage, giving the summary all the way up through day eight. This time, though, from the comfortable confines of home base back in Enid. After, well, airports and then a bit of lounging around Oklahoma City for Sunday and day off, and then a a meeting in the morning, now it's Wednesday back in Enid, getting back to work, but I wanted to go ahead and finish up the last day of talking about the pilgrimage, it would be a shame to leave it um, unresolved. So, here we are. Day 8. After having gone to uh, the Holy Sepulcher and those places in Jerusalem, it was now time to wrap up a few last places, get on the plane, and get back home. So the first place we went, after sadly packing up our luggage and heading out of the hotel for the last time, the, the Notre Dame we were staying at in Jerusalem was... A very lovely place. It was, uh, we were sad to go. They had, it was a castle with great food. Who wants to leave a castle with great food? But we had to. Had to finish our pilgrimage and get back to the States. So we begin that morning. We go to the town of Ein Kerem, which sounds like it's in Germany, but it's not. It is the town where Zachariah and Elizabeth lived. Zachariah and Elizabeth being the parents of John the Baptist the cousin of Jesus. Remember that Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. So, and you know, the baby leaps in her womb when she hear when Elizabeth hears Mary's voice. Uh, so it's the place, the church of Ayn Karim uh, is the birthplace of John the Baptist. Well, it's, it's the church built over the birthplace of John the Baptist. So as there is in so many other places, there is a cave where the family lived. Um, this area is full of caves, by the way, in case you haven't gotten that point. Uh, there's a cave where the family lived, and John the Baptist was born in this cave, church built over it, um, as I'm sure, you know, again, following the same pattern before as out of the other, all these other places. I'm sure there are several centuries of churches, different eras, you know, original church or original site, original church, maybe a Byzantine era church, maybe a mosque at some point, now the current Christian church again. Lots of layers of history. But you can go down on the left side of the altar, there's you know, where there might usually be a side chapel at ground level. Instead, it goes down about 10, 10 steps to a little cave, a little grotto. And there is a marker of the place uh, where the birth of John the Baptist happened. Um, traditionally, at least, uh, there's not, well, I don't know, maybe there actually maybe was carving on the walls of John the Baptist born here. Not sure. Uh, he was a famous person at his time. So it seems at least highly plausible that the church would have a, an enduring memory of where he was born. Uh, Zachary and Elizabeth themselves probably didn't uh, register much in history at the time, but surely a figure like John the Baptist, his birthplace would be remembered, um, at least by the family in the area. Because remember, these villages are not the substantial towns and cities that we, that we see today. Uh, they would have been a few hundred people, maybe, so, you know, imagine you're from a super small town in Oklahoma or somewhere and someone very famous who is doing big things in the whole country is from that town. You're going to remember what house they were born in, right? You know, in Stillwater, we have the house where Garth Brooks lived pretty proudly marked. So it's not implausible that we would remember the house where John the Baptist was born. That's not outside of the realm of possibility. Across town in, again, in Ayn Karim. Is a place called Mary's Spring. Uh, it's the place where traditionally, and this is I'm sure less certain, where Elizabeth was standing, you know, perhaps drawing water to take back to her house when Mary arrived and first greeted her. So, greeted her. So it would be the place where John the Baptist leapt in Mary's womb. Uh, there's not a church there or anything, but there's it's called Mary's Spring. Um, you know, a lovely little uh, reminder of that of that um, special meeting between, as our guide to the two holiest women in history, the mother of Jesus and the mother of John the Baptist. Remember, Scripture says that no no one greater was born of woman than John the Baptist, of course, excluding Christ in that. No normal person, if you will, no one who wasn't the son of God was greater born than John the Baptist. So that makes Elizabeth pretty pretty special, too, if she is the mother of the greatest non-divine person ever born. So, uh, there's a spring there called Mary Spring. It's just a spring of water coming out of a hillside. Kind of got some, some stonework around it now so it flows a certain way. And uh, Then up the hill, we visited the Church of the Visitation, which is the house of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now, I already mentioned the house of Elizabeth and Zachariah. They had two houses. Yes, they did. Zechariah was a temple priest, and so the priestly class was an upper class of society. They were an educated class, a wealthier class. There's nothing surprising about that. Um, they were hereditarily born into this job of being part of the priestly class, and there was, there was benefits with that. They were They were well taken care of by the community for being their priests. And so these are not uh, luxurious homes down in the valley and up on the mountaintop. Um, but it's, it's not uh, unreasonable that Zachariah and Elizabeth would have had one home down in the town for you know, maybe the cooler parts of the year. But then in the summertime when it was, would would get pretty hot, they would go up to a house um, up on, not on top of the mountain per se, but uh, notably up the mountain where it would be cooler. Again, these are not luxurious homes, Mostly caves, Um, but it's okay that he had that the family had two houses. So there's one down in the village where John the Baptist was born, but then another one up in the hills where Mary would have stayed with Elizabeth for those months. Remember, the scripture says that Mary arose and went to the hill country to visit Elizabeth, too. So this is the hill country. It's not, you know, rocky mountains, but it is uh, hilly, and actually it uh, it looks a bit like Santa Fe, New Mexico. Maybe uh, kind of rocky hillsides, definitely lots of pine trees. Kind of has a bit of an alpine feel to it. There was even uh, a trendy coffee shop around. Some some pinion wood smells. Some people doing some mountain biking. Uh, honestly, it didn't look exactly like Santa Fe, of course, uh, but it had that kind of. Uh, American Southwest New Mexico, Colorado vibe to it honestly uh, the the geography looked somewhat like that as well as the kind of things that were happening again, the, the trendy coffee shop and the mountain biking that were there. We pray and we go to this church where it's actually where we had mass that day. the church of the visitation, a staggeringly beautiful church the um the frescoes in the altar, area, which I'll post a picture of them, absolutely astounding. and I didn't I might have post pictures of all of the walls, but all of the walls had various uh, images of Mary um, decorated in between the images with with uh, symbolic representations of Marian virtues. Uh, the the apse itself has these wonderful pictures of different Marian basilicas, basically the architects of different Marian churches symbolically holding a statue of the church they designed, presenting them to Mary. So this is um, one... You know, this is a Marian church, church dedicated to Mary, and there's images of uh, these other Marian churches calling to mind many places around the world where Mary is honored. Uh, it wasn't, you know, the, the interior decoration isn't gold in a Baroque kind of way, but the whole interior just glows with a beautiful gold radiance. I think a, a fitting way to To reference and to honor Mary. It's honestly one of the pretty churches we were in the whole time in the Holy Land. After we left there, we went to a place called the Valley of Elah. The Valley of Elah is the traditional place where David slew Goliath. It's pretty sweet. Uh, There's not any kind of church there, no signage particularly. Uh, There's some hiking trails, so obviously some people come there. Uh, But it is the traditional place where according to our tour guide, at least, uh, where David remembers facing the armies and he goes and picks up five smooth, smooth stones from the wadi that is from the river. And he slays Goliath in the story that pretty much everybody is familiar with. Um, it's a nice area. There's some fields. I don't know what was growing in the fields, uh, river running by. Some of us climbed the hill that was nearby. Um, because it was a nice day, and you got to climb hills, right? So we went up there, enjoyed the nice view. I pretended to be Moses, as he, uh, remember in an earlier part of Scripture where I think Joshua is leading the armies down to the valley, and as long as Moses has his hands lifted up, the Israelites have the better of the battle, but when his arms get tired, they he put the, the other some pagan culture they were fighting begins to have the better advantage, and so They get sticks, and they they hold Moses' arms up. Well, since it was a a field of battle, but not that particular one. Anyways, still a field of battle. I held my hands up, and my friends helped me out with a stick. You know, I'm not really Moses, but it seemed like a fitting thing for the priest to do up there on top of the hill. No battle was happening. It was a beautiful day, but we had some fun up there. Many people picked up lots of stone, some of them very large. Uh, I think Tony from Casting Nets took home some massive bread loaf boulders. Tony, I'm not sure that um, David could have slung those. That's not really how a sling works. Unless you have a giant, who knows what, massive piece of leather is your sling. But, you know, good on you for being energetic about it, and I hope those stones don't take a million dollars to ship back home. And that when they get home, you will display them proudly, because who doesn't like rocks that King David could have seen? Excellent. So... Uh, we move on from there, sadly, to nearing the end of our pilgrimage. Uh, that was the last, you know, holy site that we went to. We did stop by um, another place, a big tower thing that that Herod built. Rather impressive, honestly. He literally moved half of a mountain over to build. Uh, you know, kind of imagine a mountain that was kind of a a, a saddle shape. He carved off the left side mountain and piled it on top of the right had to make it twice as tall so he could, I think, see Jerusalem from the top of this mountain because he was a guy who had, um, some, uh, some compensation issues. So he had to make sure, Oh, I know what it was. It was, it had to be slightly taller than the pyramids of Egypt because he wanted to be more important than the Kings of Egypt and the Pharaohs of Egypt. So he had his architects, uh, build it at just one foot taller because you know, heaven forbid he's not quite as tall as somebody in another country. That would just be the that would just be awful, wouldn't it? So we stopped through that. The only reason we went there, I found out later, is we were supposed to go to Emmaus, which is obviously a much more significant place than a tower built by Herod, but uh, our guide informed us later that I guess there's a concert or some, some big thing going on that day that just wouldn't have made it possible for a tour bus full of pilgrims to go there. So we didn't go to Emmaus, and we went to this tower, but That's okay. That wasn't the last thing we did. We did have a good ending. We went back to our tour guide's restaurant, Cheers, our friend Rami. We certainly can call him our friend by the end of the pilgrimage. I mentioned we stopped by his restaurant before, but here on the last day, we actually went to his restaurant for dinner. Uh, They made us some fantastic food. Um, Salads were almost the feature of it, which seems so strange to say. Uh, you know our, our friend Mr. Laffey Wade, our principal, who's also on the trip. He's an Iowa farm boy, not necessarily one to favor salads, you might say. Um, but several times, several times he said, "You know, I didn't expect this, but I am, I am impressed by these salads, and they were really good. Uh, three different kinds they brought out. Honestly, I, I couldn't tell you all of them. Uh, some people uh, took pictures of them and wrote them down and got the recipes, but they were." Really good salads, and everything they brought out to us was really good. Uh, I think I had the salmon, other people had some um, pasta salmon, some people had uh, steak. All of it was fantastic. Um, The better part, though, even better than the food, which was great, and the drinks, which were plentiful, uh, was the music. Uh, Our friend Shibli Kando, Kando, who I mentioned earlier, who has the, the antiquities and souvenir shop, whom we got a good number of things from, he is also a fantastic musician. Uh, fantastic in the sense of uh, having done accompaniment for uh, serious musicians. Um, I, you, he, Sting was one of them, but there's another one even even more famous and um, well-liked than that who he also accompanied. I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but he began to play an instrument called the Oot, which is um, an old-style-looking guitar made of a gourd. Um, and then there's another instrument, too, I forget what it was called, but it was basically a guitar, but a, a different version of one but he was as billed absolutely fantastic um you know, playing with great rapidity i've never seen somebody play a guitar that smoothly that quickly that naturally it was staggering he really is a man of uh, many talents you know, to have to have that kind of skill but also be um obviously a very successful uh, antiquities merchant and, you know, someone whose grandfather discovered, helped discover the Dead Sea Scrolls um, and a very generous man who facilitates international charity work and all sorts of things. Uh, what an incredible person. What, what a, we, we met lots of many incredible people on the trip, but he is certainly um, one of the most incredible. So we had that for a couple hours there. Food, drinks, music, lots of good conversation, lots of talking to, talking to our new friends that we made on the trip. And then sadly, the time came to return to the airport after nine and a half, ten-ish days, you might say, in the Holy Land. After so long ago, we landed in the Tel Aviv airport and drove expectantly to Iberia to begin our trip. It was now time to depart, time to take the long, quiet ride, about an hour and a half away from all the holy sites. To the coast, to Tel Aviv, through the Tel Aviv airport, which, Lord have mercy, I never want to go through there again. I've been, never been through so many checkpoints, so many check-in, check this, sign this, scan this form, look in your bag three times over. Oh my gosh. It was um, not a delightful way necessarily to end the pilgrimage. Uh, we flew from, well, we'd gotten up that morning, at, you know, five o'clock that morning on a Friday morning, Gone through pilgrimage all day. Arrived at the airport late in the, later in the evening through all these levels of security. God bless it. And then get on our flight at about 11 o'clock. Fly through the night. Land in Newark after 12 hours. I think it's the longest flight I've ever been on. I did sleep, much of it, sort of. By the grace of God, I did wake up after about eight hours of sort of sleeping, feeling mildly refreshed. Uh, But then we had about a a four-and-a-half-hour layover in Newark, an hour hour or so layover in Houston, before finally arriving back in Oklahoma City. And then my parents picked me up from there, and I got back and absolutely crashed. And for the next few days, uh, both um, Saturday evening, Sunday afternoon, I went and celebrated Mass down in Yukon just to say hello to the people down there. Slept for a couple hours Sunday afternoon, then basically went right to bed Sunday night. Uh, more or less the same thing on Monday, laid low, took a nap. I think by Tuesday, especially now today, Wednesday as I'm recording this, I do think I'm recovered. I do think uh, schedule is back in line. Last couple mornings I've woken up, or the last three or four mornings since arriving back, I've woken up involuntarily at 3, 4, 5 in the morning. Uh, this morning I was awake at about 5.30, but not voluntarily. I had to uh, make a point of getting out of bed, which is, well, Which means I'm back to normal, as opposed to as the last couple mornings of springing wide awake at 4 a.m. and being chipper and ready to go. Um, I slept in like normal, or at least wanted to sleep like normal. So I think I'm back on track. Um, pilgrimage is over. Much praying was done. But in a certain sense, it's only just beginning. Uh, as I've said before, I think many of the graces from this pilgrimage are really yet to be yet to be revealed, yet to be received. Um, Hopefully for those whom I prayed for, many graces will keep coming. But also, um, for me, as I I think I mentioned a couple episodes ago, um, this pilgrimage has helped me realize some some clarity on sort of the uh, sub-discernment within the priesthood. And um, my prayer is that the graces from this, especially for me personally, but definitely for everybody, but I'm thinking of... um, the ones I have in mind that uh, it won't just be a thing that happened. I move on and go back to normal parish life. Not that anything is wrong with normal parish life. I love it. But uh, it would be a lack of accepting God's grace to go back to just normal as things were before after this book. That would be almost treated like a vacation. Um, So my prayer is to, not not keep it going like you would say for after a retreat, but to um, be intentional about seeking out the graces that were that were earned from this pilgrimage, uh, and make something of them. Let them be what they need to be. Basically, say to God, "Okay, you, you gave me this opportunity, and you've opened my eyes to some things that um, that are that are opportunities and possibilities because of this. What do I do with that? Help me to do what you want me to do with that." So that's my prayer for myself and for everybody who's on this pilgrimage that uh, the fruit of it not just be while we were there, but that it may continue, that it may um, enliven our spiritual life, may give us a greater confidence in the intercession of God, not the intercession of God, give us greater confidence in the act of interceding, in the act of asking for God's blessings, that he will do good for us, uh, specifically for what we ask, specifically because we offered it on pilgrimage, and that uh, it will be a blessing for ourselves to enliven our faith enliven the faith of all those we encounter and therefore the whole church. So thank you for listening to all these episodes. Uh, Thank you for praying for me. Again, know of my prayers for you all and um, let us bless God together. Thanks.